It's been said people usually get the leaders they deserve. And that was never more true than with ancient Israel. Their first king, Saul, was a microcosm of the nation. Israel wanted an earthly king so that they could be like the nations around them. They inherited a king with the same tendency. He lived to please people rather than God. Saul begins to show his true colors tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Now remember, after he defeated the Ammonites, the people go down to Gilgal where they celebrate their victory. They offer thanksgiving to God. And in chapter 12, it records Samuel's message to the people on that occasion. Now Samuel said to all Israel, chapter 12, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me, and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. And notice what he says. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Imagine spending your whole life in the fishbowl of public ministry. He had lived under the scrutiny his whole life. He said, since I was a child, now I'm gray-headed. For all of my life, I've lived before you as priest. Samuel wasn't just your neighbor. He was the pastor next door. Samuel wasn't just the little league coach. He was the little league coach who was also a pastor. People drove by his house and they thought, that's where the pastor lives. Samuel had always been under the scrutiny of the people. He had always been measured by a higher standard. He even adds, look, my sons are with you. And boy, the story sons of preachers can tell. Nevertheless, he's saying, my kids know what kind of man I am as well. He says, here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? And whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Here's a great example for us. When you get old and gray-headed, can you stand before the people and say, Hey, who have I cheated? Who have I oppressed? Who have I mistreated? Samuel had ordered his entire life so that God's enemies wouldn't have any dirt to throw at his reputation. He had lived his entire life above reproach. What a good example for us. Samuel's life was a witness to the Lord's faithfulness and to the Lord's keeping power. Then he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed, the king, is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, yes, he is a witness. Now in verse 6, Samuel begins to recount some history. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. God's past works are going to be a predictor of his work in the future. He says, Now therefore stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord, concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did to you and your fathers when Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord. Then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Remember the Exodus was an answer to the people's prayer. Sometimes we forget that. I believe every miracle that God does is an answer to someone's prayer. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera. And here he's talking about the period of the judges. Commander of the army of Hazor into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And you remember the cycle that repeated itself over and over during the period of the judges. In fact, it repeated itself at least seven times. You remember the cycle? The people would sin and follow after false gods. God would then punish Israel by making them slaves to their enemies, to surrounding nations. Israel would repent 
and make supplication before the Lord, God would answer their prayer by raising up a judge or a savior to deliver them. God's spirit would empower that man or that woman to do great works and to lead Israel into victory. And then, of course, the triumph would be followed by a period of peace and serenity only to be interrupted again by another sin. Sin, enslavement, supplication, salvation, the spirit, serenity, and it was repeated seven times in the book of Judges. Then they would cry out to the Lord, he says, and say, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths, these false gods. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. And the Lord answered their prayer. He sent Jerubbabel and Bedon and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you dwelt in safety. And notice this list of judges here. Notice the inclusion of the name Bedan. He's not mentioned in the book of Judges. Where did he come from? What did he do? We don't know. There are some scholars that take the name Bedan as a variant of the word Barak. That's a possibility. Or it could be that an unknown judge is listed here. He continues, And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, and now this is recent history, came up against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you, Saul the Benjamite. Now if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice, and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the king will be against you as it was against your fathers. And Samuel's warning, his message here, is then confirmed by God with a miracle. I wish all of my messages were confirmed by a miracle. Just conjure up a little thunderstorm, a little supernatural manifestation, you know, to hammer home the point. That's what Samuel does here in verse 16. Now therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and He will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. Now, it's the dog days of September now. We're getting thunderstorms every afternoon. It's about, oh, 10 minutes till 7. I could get up and say, Now tonight when you leave, if these words are true, the Lord will bring rain and thunder upon your house. And it probably will happen, but I don't even have that much faith. This was the wheat harvest. This was the wheat harvest, which was late May, early June in Israel, which was actually the dry season of the year. This took a little bit more faith on Samuel's part to predict rain. And yet at his command, God will bring about an old thunderstorm. God will add some special effects to Samuel's sermon to hammer home its importance. And so Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Samuel called for rain in the, rain, in the dry season. Be the equivalent of me calling for snow tonight. Now that might really make an impression. But here the thunderstorm comes. It confirms the message. The people realize they've made a mistake in asking for a king. And then Samuel said to the people, Do not fear, you have done all this wickedness, and yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And notice this, And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. Here's a good word to us. I hope you're not chasing after empty things tonight. 
after drugs and sex and money and fame and ambition and all that the world has to offer. I hope you're not chasing after empty things that don't profit, that don't deliver. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you His people. After Samuel's sermon and God's stormy affirmation, the people repent. And in verse 19, they ask Samuel to intercede for them. Pray for us. And Samuel assures Israel that he will, verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Guys, did you realize there is such a thing as the sin of prayerlessness? Notice what Samuel says. For be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. There's such a thing as the sin of prayerlessness. This comes as a shock to most Christians. We tend to think of prayer as an elective, as an optional activity. Rather, it's part of Christianity's core curriculum. Prayer is an incredible privilege, no doubt about it. Imagine to reach up by faith and touch the hem of our Lord's garment. To communicate with the Almighty. But prayer is far more than a privilege. Prayer is also a responsibility. It's our duty to pray. And it's our duty to pray for each other. Verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. And I hope you'll do that this week. I hope you'll take some time to consider what great things God has done for you. That's always a helpful exercise. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. The warning is as needed as the encouragement. Chapter 13 begins. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, And in the mountains of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. After Saul's victory over the Ammonites, he basically disbands his standing army. He keeps a small militia to protect the king, and he keeps a special ops force under the command of Jonathan, his son. And this Jonathan, oh my, he was a feisty general. He was ready to take on Israel's enemies at a moment's notice. We're told, and Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. In other words, so many you couldn't count them. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. Jonathan now has stirred up these Philistines, and boy, they're on the war path. They camp in Saul's backyard, right there in the hills of Benjamin. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in holes and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They were so frightened they abandoned the battlefield, the show of force on the Part of the Philistines scared them. Many of them went A-W-O-L. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Verse 8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Now Saul is being tested. Does he trust in God? Or does he trust in his own military strategy and his own military might? You see, Samuel told Saul to wait 
so that he could come and offer a sacrifice to God and to dedicate the army and pray for Israel's victory. But from a military standpoint, Saul needed to act. And he needed to act quickly. Catch the the picture here. Saul is under a lot of pressure. The longer he waits to launch this strike against the Philistines, the more his troops start to unravel. Every day he delays, the panic among his troops spreads. The pressure begins to mount. More and more Hebrews chicken out and disappear into the countryside. Saul, hurry, you need to act. The problem, though, is that a sacrifice needs to be offered. And Saul doesn't dare go into battle without this sacrifice being altered, without the troops being dedicated. But here's the problem. Saul was a king. Samuel was the priest. And only the priest could offer the sacrifice, and so he had to wait. F.B. Meyer once said, God can only use those who trust Him absolutely, and He often tests them by long delays. Are you being tested tonight by a long delay? Hey, a prerequisite for Christian service is the willingness to wait on God. Get ahead of God, and you might find yourself on your own. Well, Saul reveals his character, I might say lack of it, in verse 9. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Jumped the gun, didn't he? Usurped the priestly place when he should have waited on Samuel. And the blood is still dripping from his knife when guess who shows up? Samuel walks up. Now it happened... As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Notice he's quoting all these circumstances, all these different circumstances that he was looking to, rather than looking to where he needed to look, to God. Are you living according to your circumstances? Are you an externally motivated person? Or are you living according to internal principles, convictions that God has placed in your heart? Are you trying to make people happy? Are you trying to make God happy? And the Philistines, they'd gathered together in Michmash, and, and look at all what's going on. And then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. This was Saul's problem. He felt compelled, and he acted. He allowed his compulsions to control his behavior rather than his convictions. Do you let your compulsions control you? Or are you motivated by convictions? Saul acted on feeling, not faith. Hey, feelings and pressures can cause snap decisions that can get us in lots of trouble. And externally motivated people tend to respond to whatever outward stimulus is applying the most pressure. We need to tie our feelings to the anchor of God's truth. Well, Samuel has ominous words for Saul. His impatience has cost him dearly. Verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for Himself a man after His own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Boy, this was a defining moment. Saul has failed the test. And God has concluded that he can't trust Saul. Saul will continue to sit on the throne of Israel, but God's choice for king sits elsewhere. Verse 14 tells us that God wanted a man after his own heart. Not a man governed by compulsions, but a man governed by God. In chapter 16, we're going to find this man. He's a little shepherd boy by the name of David. You see, Saul thought, 
What will this do for me? Whereas David thought, how can I please God? Here's a poem. When conducting the band, you'll find it's allowed. You're expected to stand with your back to the crowd. You see, this was Saul's problem in a nutshell. He couldn't lead with his back to the crowd. Every move he made was a play to the crowd. His only goal was to enhance his own image. Saul was so insecure, he lusted for people's approval at all costs. What about you? Do you allow the winds of circumstance to drive your ship? Or are you anchored to truth and to principle? Are you an internally motivated person or are you an externally motivated person? Do convictions set your course or do circumstances? Does your insecurity cause you to cave in to the opinions of others or do you trust God to make you strong? Is image everything or are you determined to please the Lord? Are you a Saul or are you a David? Well, verse 15 tells us, Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to the road of Orphrah to the land of Shul. In other words, they went northward. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon. They went westward. And another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. They went eastward. They all fanned out in three different directions. Now these Philistines, they conducted some commando raids. And what they were doing is they were intending to immobilize Saul. Their mission was to sort of cut off the travel lanes. Prohibit Saul from rallying his troops, supporting them and fortifying and stockpiling weapons. They were doing a little little pre-battle strategy here to sort of cut Saul off and immobilize him. They were successful. Verse 19 also adds, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. Now, you're an Israelite, and you need your plowshare sharpened, or your swing blade or whatever sharpened. You think you're going to get a good edge from the Philistines? Not on your life. Because the Philistines know that those rakes and plowshares you're bringing to them, they can become weapons. They're not going to give you a good edge. They're not going to sharpen your your implement. They're afraid that your implement might turn into a weapon. Understand, the Philistines held a monopoly on the latest technology. Remember, the Philistines were a seafaring people. And they had imported the ability to smelt and sharpen iron from the Greeks. It was an advantage they wanted to keep because it was an advantage that would put them ahead on the battlefield. Verse 22. And so it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan... But they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. Only the royal family had a sword or spear. Everybody else had these dull farming implements that they were going to use. Any army Israel might muster would be vastly unarmed. That's the point. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Now, Saul is still sulking. He's been rejected as king. The Philistines are cutting off supply lines... They're isolating Saul. Saul, though, is still sulking. The Philistines are on the move. These three commando units have done their job. The Israeli army is stalled out and immobilized. Saul is providing no leadership whatsoever in the face of this aggression. And Jonathan, his son, can't stand it. He abhors Saul's silence. Israel should retaliate. Somebody needs to do something. And so he takes it upon himself 
to launch a secret offensive, chapter 14. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now the armor bearer was more than just sort of a caddy. He didn't just carry around his armor. He was an assistant. He was kind of a sidekick. He was a brave and a trusted accomplice in combat. He was someone who fought with you. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Again, Saul is still sulking. He's sitting under this tree sulking, feeling sorry for himself, licking his wounds. He's self-absorbed while the Philistines are wreaking havoc in the land. Well, verse 3. Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And this seems to come out of nowhere, but I think what he's saying here is that there was a priest available. I mean, Saul could have gone for prayer. He could have gotten some help. He could have gotten some counsel. Saul could have sought the Lord, but he didn't. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Now, between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. Now, during his reconnaissance, Jonathan had noticed these two sharp rocks that had formed sort of a narrow passageway between them. Here, a few men, just a few men, could fend off a multitude of troops. These rocks even had names, believe it or not. And the name of one was Bozes, which means glistening. Apparently, it it sparkled in the sunshine. And the name of the other, Sina, which means thorny. And you can imagine all the little gnarly bushes and all that grew over this rock. These two rocks were called shiny and sticky. The front of the one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Geba. Now these were strategic. Verse 6, and you got to love Prince Jonathan's daring faith. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Rather than just prop up the status quo, Jonathan says, Hey, let's take a step of faith. Let's do something different. Let's just dare to see what God might do. As the old saying goes, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Hey, we all need to be willing to take some ventures of faith. Are you willing to take a venture of faith? God blesses people who are not content to sulk and sit back, but are looking for a challenge. Are you a warrior for God who's crossing back and forth through enemy territory, looking for opportunities? Are you on the lookout for a challenge, on a lookout for God to do a work? Saul was stuck on himself. He was busy massaging his bumps and bruises. God wants men and women of faith like Jonathan, who are not afraid to move outside the box, who are not afraid to take some initiative and go on the offensive. Hey, sense a need. Get a direction. Then go for it and just see what God might do. Well, Jonathan's armor bearer, he's also up for the challenge. He said to him, do all that is in your heart. I'm with you, man. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. Now Jonathan and his sidekick, they're they're about to launch out on a venture of faith. But notice they don't want to be real presumptuous. They pose a test to make sure that the Lord is going to be with them. Then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. We're just going to show our faces. And if they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. Sounds sounds good. They're hoping to get invited into the camp. That's going to be the green light that God wants them to launch their little invasion. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. A little sarcastic there. 
Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you something. In other words, hey, come on over here, buddy. We're going to teach you a lesson. We're going to show you something. We're going to show you something. That's what they were doing. The Philistines are trash talking, but these two Hebrews take it as God's green light. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after them, and they fell before Jonathan. We learn elsewhere that Jonathan was an excellent archer. And evidently he picked them off one by one with his bow. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. Those that Jonathan didn't hit with an arrow... They charged after him, and his armor bearer picked him off with the sword. So between the sword and the bow and arrow, they were mowing down Philistines. The first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half an acre of land. 1,089 square feet per dead Philistine right there. Now before we move on, let me sum up five components of Jonathan's venture of faith. Because when you take an initiative and you take a venture of faith and you go out to gain ground for God, understand here's what's involved. First, you need a daring faith. Do you have a daring faith? Are you willing to step out of the box? Do something different for God. Second, a deliberate plan. Jonathan put together a plan. Third, discernment of God's will. That's very, very important. Fourth, a discreet approach. Notice they didn't just charge into the camp kamikaze style. I mean, Jonathan, he, you know, he climbed discreetly to the top of the rock where he could gain the upper hand. And then fifth, a divine intervention. God joined this venture of faith. Hey, do you have a daring faith and a deliberate plan and a discernment of God's will and a discreet approach? If so, you can expect some divine intervention. Take a venture of faith. And God will work great things through you. Well, news of Jonathan's victory, coupled with a well-timed, God-orchestrated earthquake, produced some hysteria, some panic in the camp of the Philistines. Verse 15. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it was a very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah Benjamin looked, And there was the multitude melting away, and they went here and there. And then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahiah, Bring the ark of God here. For at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Notice this, now it happened. When Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. I'm reading a little into it here, but evidently Saul had asked the priest to seek God's will. And you remember how the priest would do that? He would reach into his breastplate and he would pull out one of the two stones, either the Urim or the Thummim. You remember we talked about that earlier? Well, he's reaching in to pull out his hand when all of a sudden Saul tells him, Oh, just withdraw your hand. I don't need that. I see what's going on. You know, God has put the camp in panic. Two of our men have gone out and dared to show their faith. Hey, we need to fight. You know, sometimes you know God's will. You just know it. You know, sometimes you, you, you're seeking God's will. You've got all your friends praying for you. Hey, please pray for me that I can know God. But you know God's will already. Why are you praying for it? Why are you praying about something you already know to be true? Sometimes we seek an answer that's obvious. Here it's obvious. It's time for Israel to fight. We've been sitting around long enough. These two men have stirred up the faith of the whole nation. It's time to fight. Hey, sometimes you just need to withdraw your hand. And do what God's telling you to do. Well, then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled. And they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor. And there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, there had been some deserters, believe it or not, 
who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Isn't it amazing? The faith of just two men stirred up and rallied the entire nation to do what God had called them to do. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. And once again, Saul does a stupid thing. How stupid can you be? He takes a rash vow that's really designed just to fuel his own ego. Nobody should eat anything until my enemies have fallen. Why do you say something like that when your your army, your troops are going to need to have energy? They're going to need to eat. They're going to need to be fortified so they can fight this battle for you. Again, it was a compulsive kind of a thing. Now all the people of the land came to a forest. And there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth. For the people feared the oath. They'd all vowed. You know, Saul had told them we can't eat until the victory's been won. And so they'd all taken this vow. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his countenance brightened. Now, here's an important spiritual lesson for you and me. Don't get so busy fighting spiritual battles that you never take time out to feed your own soul. I hope you know that. If you're always giving out and never replenishing, never refueling, you'll grow weak. Like Jonathan, every Christian needs a little honey from the honeycomb, from God's Word to keep us going so that we can finish the battle. Well, then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Now, Jonathan is dead right in his assessment. But he was probably wrong in criticizing the king in front of the people. For what it will do is it will provide them an excuse for breaking their vow. For unlike Jonathan, they had agreed to this oath that they had taken. Verse 31. Now, they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, So the people were very faint. They hadn't eaten. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Now, again, Jonathan had been a bad example. He had basically spurred them on to break Saul's oath. But not only did they break the oath, they broke God's law. For they ate the meat along with the blood. And you know from our study of the dietary law that the blood was always drained from the meat. That's what made it kosher. That's what allowed the Hebrews to be able to eat it. Here they're so hungry because of this foolish vow taken by Saul that now they do something rash. And now they're not only breaking Saul's oath, they're breaking God's law. Well, then they said to Saul, saying, look, The people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. And so everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. And notice the footnote. This was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Isn't it interesting? He's been king now for several years. This is just the first altar he's built? Shows his lack of devotion, doesn't it? Verse 36. 
Now Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. And then the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. Now Saul is assuming that God's silence, he's prayed, God hasn't answered, that God's silence is the result of some specific sin that's been committed within the camp. He says, For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Oh, don't say those kind of rash things. But not a man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And imagine Saul's surprise when it was discovered the secret sin was between him or his son... And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. Let's narrow it down even further. And so Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die? In other words, you can't be serious, Dad. I mean, mean, you can't really be serious, You're going to execute me over a little honey? And Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Here's a father who's lost his mind, who has allowed little things to drive a wedge between him and his son. Saul should have realized the rashness of his oath and admitted his mistake. He should have said, I was wrong. I made a wrong oath. I made a wrong vow. I had the wrong conclusion. But now he's made such a big deal over the matter that all he's interested in is in saving face. Notice this. Saul is so concerned now about saving face that he's not even interested in saving his own son. He's so concerned about public perception that he would rather slay his own son than look weak in the eyes of other people. Verse 45, But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? I mean, you're going to kill the man that God has been using? You're going to execute your own son? When God has used him in such a dramatic way, how can that be? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. Can you imagine? This is unbelievable. The people rise up to save their national hero from the pride and impulsiveness of his own father. They saved this man from the stubbornness of his own father. The people saved Jonathan. Saul's goal was only to save face, even if it meant killing his own son. You see, Saul's insecurity, his pride, caused him to lose grip on reality. And the people saved him from killing his own son. Well, then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them and gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. And in verse 49, we find Saul's family tree. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshua, and Malchishua. And the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn, Merib, And the name of the younger, Michael, remember that name. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the son of Ahamaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. 
Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And verse 52 tells us that Saul's army employed an interesting form of the draft. Rather than Uncle Sam, it was Uncle Abner wants you. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. How's that for a draft? You remember back in chapter 8 when Israel asked for a king? You remember what Samuel warned them? He says, you, you, you choose a king, but he's going to take from you your finest young men. And here his warnings come true. See, Israel had underestimated the ferocity of kings. Well, chapter 15 marks the beginning of the end for King Saul. God gives him a mission. God has an old score to settle with the Amalekites. You remember, as soon as Israel exited Egypt, the opportunistic Amalekites, they struck the newborn nation. At the time, Israel had no army. All Israel was was a band of slaves. And Amalek saw them as easy pickings. And they tried to pounce on God's people. God remembered the Amalekites for their outrageous strategy. And now it's payback time, which brings up an interesting point. You've heard the old saying, time heals. You know, that might be true of cuts and scrapes. That might be true of bruised feelings. But it is certainly not true when it's applied to sin and forgiveness. Time alone never atones for sin. Not even 400 years cause God to forget the sin of an unrepentant Amalek. And he's about to treat Amalek with the same harshness that he had handed out to Israel. Verse 1. Well, Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. The Kenites were descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And so he's basically, there's no need to punish the innocent here along with the guilty. So, so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. In other words, it was a complete and a savage slaughter. But he also took Agag, king of the Amalekites. And what did God tell him? Did he tell him to take any prisoners? No. But he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all of the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them as God had told him to. He was disobedient. Saul's orders were to take no prisoners. Every Amalekite, every animal with an Amalekite brand should have been slaughtered. Instead, Saul keeps King Agag as a trophy. And he holds on to the best of the herds as a reward for a job well done. He figured, why waste good barbecue? There's some lamb chops here. Let's hold on to them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Sounds pretty selfish. Verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And what sad words for the God of all patience to regret setting a person up in ministry. 
whether that person is a king or a pastor or a servant or a parent or a spouse. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Now, Saul has changed. You remember back at the end of chapter 11, when Saul defeated the Ammonites, his main concern was not to do anything to distract glory from God. Now, after this victory, he sets up a memorial to himself. When you measure your own worth by what other people think, two things will happen. You'll either shy away from attention or you'll clamor to get all you can have. At times, Saul did both. Well, then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now he says this while all of these sheep and goats are bleating in the background. And Samuel catches him red-handed. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and this lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. He noticed his religious justification for disobedience. Oh, we plan to use these animals as sacrifices. That's like, we kept the moonshine because we're going to put it in the communion cups next Sunday. As if God is going to be pleased with illegal contraband. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And remember, he had grieved until daylight. Perhaps the tears were still in his eyes. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek, I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Saul disobeys, but he blames it on the people. Last I checked, Saul, you're king. People do what the king says. Verse 22 is a famous passage. Then Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Saul had confused sacrifice with obedience. Many people do. Folks assume that you can do as you please as long as when you're done, you just throw God a bone. They figure that God can be pacified, that He can be bought off by offering Him some kind of suitable sacrifice. The problem is, they don't know God. Almighty Almighty God could care less about your puny sacrifices. God wants us, not our sacrifices. He wants our hearts and our devotion and our submission. He wants an attitude of trust and obedience. An occasional tip of the hat in God's direction. It's no substitute. Samuel tells Saul to obey is better than sacrifice. To take heed better than the fat of rams. And in verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. You know, there are people just like Saul who crowd the pews of our churches every Sunday. Outwardly, they're so sacrificial. They've shown up on Sunday to worship God. 
They have an offering in their hand. They serve as an usher. They do their turn in the nursery. Their sacrifice is on the altar, but there is rebellion in their heart. You see, God has demands on their life that they're stubbornly resisting. Outwardly, they've got it all together. They look so religious. No one would ever call them a sinner, let alone a witch or an idolater. But you see, God grades on a different scale. On the surface, you might not be a diabolical person. You're not into witchcraft. You don't have idols sitting on your mantle. Yet to God, rebellion, stubbornness of heart is the same as witchcraft. Stubbornness is as the same as idolatry. God measures on a different scale. And next comes the words that Saul will regret the rest of his life. He says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And look at Saul's explanation of his disobedience. Verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Again, Saul cared more about the approval of people than he did about God's rejection. I mean, you would think the king, the one person who has no peers, would be the one person immune from peer pressure. But Saul ends up succumbing to the pressure of his peers. Saul was an externally motivated person to the bitter end. And Saul asked for a pardon again in verse 25. Now therefore... Please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. Now you got to remember Saul. you got to understand Saul. His insecurities are always just under the surface. Suddenly, the humiliation of losing his position is more than he can handle. It's now an assault to his fragile ego, and he loses composure. He wants his way no matter what, and so as Samuel is walking away, he reaches up and he grabs him, and he pulls him back. No, 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 this is not working out the way I wanted it to. I want you to go back with me. I want you to forgive me. I want you to help me save face in the eyes of the people. And he tears the edge of his robe. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent or who should change his mind. And after such a devastating announcement, most people would have hung their heads and just walked away, but not Saul. He's still worried about his image. Saul asked Samuel in verse 30, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. And in other words, he's asking the prophet, he says, please come back with me so that you know the elders and the other leaders will see me and you together and they'll think everything's okay. Still all about image. Saul and Andre Agassi. Remember that commercial? Image is everything. Was with Saul. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. But notice Samuel's concern is not Saul's image. He has some unfinished business to do. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. <laughs> I imagine so. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Oh, Samuel, let's just let bygones be bygones. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Approached Samuel cautiously, kind of a chicken, really. And Samuel hacked him up. The first chicken McNuggets. Hey, gag, gag. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. 
And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Saul mourned, Samuel mourned for Saul. And notice, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What a sad statement. To this point, Saul has been king over Israel for 10 years or so. And he will remain king for the next 30 years. But for those 30 years, the Lord is no longer with Saul. And as a result, nothing significant is really going to happen for the next 30 years in Israel's battles with the Philistines. Author Philip Keller sums up the career of Saul. He was forever a man determined to protect his own self-interests. Ultimately, he simply became a pathetic castaway. His end was a dreadful alienation from God. Saul's replacement enters the picture next week in chapter 16. And we're going to talk about David. That'll be more pleasant.